Well, uh, let's begin, and uh, we'll dive in. <clears throat> so, Lord, we thank you for our church, that we are able to gather here in your name openly and proclaim you, that we are able to do so in a, in a society where we are still free to do so. May you preserve that for as long as it may be. So we thank you for your word in which you have revealed yourself, that we are given a lifetime of things to learn about you, and that we will never stop learning and knowing you and loving you more. So I pray that you will bless this time, help us to see you clearly in your word. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay. Um, so, how did we even get on Sinai? What was I talking about? I don't even remember what I was talking about. It was, and I can't remember. So, And I, I've been thinking about it all day, and I just can't remember. So, something I talked about on Sunday morning... Uh, Yes, but there was something else that made me, th I don't even remember why I brought that up though, but you're right, it was, it was talking about Sinai, and <clears throat> that got me thinking about Sinai in a Trinitarian context, so we, we don't often think about Sinai as being a place where the Trinity is revealed, but the truth be told is it it really is a place of of significant uh, Trinitarian revelation, and uh, I think it's a good thing to keep that in mind when we read about this part of Exodus. Um, so, as far as the notes go, I apologize. It's it may not even be in the order that we address things, but I just kind of threw things together on paper. Um, so we may not, we may or may not follow the notes. We'll see how it goes. Um, <clears throat> so what happens on Sinai? Or at Sinai, maybe I should say. Yep. The whole burning bush thing. There's a lot of things that happen, <coughs> excuse me, I still have my cough, so I apologize. Um, there's a lot of things that happen at Sinai, and it really is a major inflection point in the history of salvation. It, it at, it's at Sinai that God establishes kind of the context in which all of the rest of the, the history of salvation up to Christ is going to unfold. So it's it's at Sinai that he gives the law and he you know he like the 10 commandments. And and that's that is the context in which all of the rest of the Old Testament and the events of the New Testament are taking place. So Sinai is a major moment in the history of salvation. It's also where God makes a covenant with Moses and with really Moses is just the representative of the people, because really God is making the covenant with all of Israel at Sinai. And so it's, <clears throat> it, it is a place of singular importance in the scriptures. And yet when we read through it, we don't often recognize that God uh, 
you know, that the triune God is being revealed at this place. And so it, it, uh, there's a number of things there that happen that are giving us some indication that God is more than just a, a singular entity. There is only one God, but he eternally exists in three persons, and each person is, is fully God. So what then is is going on and 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 this is there's a basic i don't want to say contradiction but there's two concurrent tracks that we see taking place in scripture and they kind of come to a head at sinai so before we talk about sinai itself i and will and we will talk about it a bit here but I want to establish those two parallel tracks that are taking place. And those are that none can see God, and yet at the same time, people have face-to-face encounters with God. And at Sinai, we see both happening. So, you know... Where do we so where do we see both at Sinai? And we'll talk about these more in a, in a little bit. But one is the feast, and that's kind of the thing that started me thinking about this: is when Moses and the seventy elders ascend halfway up Sinai, and they have a feast in the presence of God. It's a it's a covenant making feast, but God is is in his on his throne above them, and they are looking up at him, and they are in his presence. And then it says on several occasions that Moses talked to God face to face at Sinai. And then Moses even goes so far as to say, show me your glory. Like he's actually asking God to manifest not just himself, but his glory. And God says, you can't see me because none can see me and live. And yet God then fulfills his request and kind of protects Moses. We'll talk about it in a minute and, and passes by him so that Moses perceives him. So how do, we, how do we reconcile these two things? So none can see God, and yet people are having face-to-face encounters with God. And both are happening at Sinai. So how do we know that none can see God? He's a spirit, but so are angels. I mean, they're spiritual beings, and, and they can be seen. Well, it, it says it several times in, in Scripture that, uh, and you can see those, like there's a couple in 1 Timothy, John 1.18, 1 John 4.12, and so on, that none can see him. He is, Christ is, is in, in Colossians, he's called the image of what? The invisible God. The God that cannot be seen. And in Exodus, it you know, God specifically says that if you see me, you will be, none can see him and live. And why is that? Well, 
Yeah, he's holy and righteous. That's why Isaiah, in Isaiah 6, you know, when he, when he sees this vision of God's throne, what's his response? Woe is me. I am destroyed. I've seen God, and you know, but God has mercy on him. But it's, you know, his response is the right one because none can see him and live. From God's own mouth, that knowledge is given. And yet, there are many places where we see people having encounters with God. More than just seeing him. So what's, what's a famous one where somebody encounters God and does more than just see him? Well, what about Jacob? What does Jacob do? Yeah, he wrestles with him. And in the morning... Turn to Genesis 32.30. So, <coughs> I'm really sorry about that. <coughs> um... So Jacob, so Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. So instead, of, he, he recognizes that the person that he just wrestled with was God himself, and yet he was delivered. He was spared from death. So that's a pretty unusual Example. There's plenty of other examples from Genesis, and some of them I want to come to in just a moment. Job hasn't, you know, he says that he will see God face to face. Uh, in Exodus, well, let's talk about Judges 6.22 and Exodus 3.26. And Exodus 3.26 is the burning bush, which takes place where? The Sinai. So here we are back at Sinai. But let's look at Judges 6.22. So that's when God is calling to Gideon. And <clears throat> where is it? So then, then Gideon perceived that he, the person who was speaking to, was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen The angel of the Lord face to face. When you see Lord in all capital letters, what does that mean? Well, Yahweh. So instead of the angel of the Lord, what is that really saying? The angel of Yahweh is what it's saying. What does angel mean? Yeah, literally, it means... it comes from the Greek word angelos, which means messenger. So, it's the messenger of Yahweh. Why would Gideon respond with despair at having seen the angel of Yahweh face to face? For the same reason Isaiah did, because 
Gideon recognizes that <coughs> the angel of Yahweh is God. So some, so this gets into an interesting interpretive issue in the Old Testament. So sometimes you will see an angel called, you know, the angel of the Lord, and it is just an angel. But frequently you will see the angel of the Lord, the angel of Yahweh, functioning as God. And here is an example of that, where Gideon recognizes that he has looked at God face to face, and he is despairing because he knows what God told Moses, but God does not destroy Gideon. Where are other places that we see the angel of Yahweh? Well, Exodus uh, 3, 2 through 6, is one really, really famous one. But we don't think of it as being the angel of Yahweh. You know, it's like we've watched the Ten Commandments one too many times, and, you know, we, I say we, I am guilty of this. When I envision that encounter, I envision it with Charlton Heston. Um, you know, so, but when I, when I envision, I mean, I've seen, you know, I watched that movie a lot when I was a kid. Um, but when I envision that, I don't think usually that's the angel of Yahweh. But if you read it carefully, let's, so, I mean, let's do that. It says, start in, chat, in verse 2, and the angel of Yahweh appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. And he looked and beheld, and the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And when Yahweh saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Remember that. We'll come back to that. The holy ground. So who's, who's on the burning bush? Yeah. It's God calls out to him, calls to him from out of the burning bush. But what is on the burning bush? There in verse 2 it says, The angel of Yahweh appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. What? The angel, God is the angel of Yahweh who was appearing on the bush and he was the flame. I mean, he is burning. I mean, he is a fire, a flame. I mean, we can take that in a lot of interesting directions, but that's not quite what I want to talk about. But here you have Moses. I mean, when you think of the burning bush, do you, you think of God encountering Moses, Right? And yet here it explicitly states that this is the angel of Yahweh. So you have the angel of Yahweh identified as God. And Moses is told to take off his sandals because the ground you're on is, is holy ground because God is present there. So 
It's more than that. Yeah, he's having a more than an auditory encounter with God. So, and, and I would go so far, this is, let's say, off the record, because I don't want to go off the reservation. But uh, I think the Holy Spirit is present in this activity here as well. That, he, that That's part of what he is, he is encountering. But here we have the angel of Yahweh is being recognized as God. And there are many, many other places where this happens. For example, Genesis chapter 22. What happens in Genesis chapter 22? The sacrifice of Isaac. So, Abraham goes up on the hill, builds an altar, binds up Isaac, uh, I'm looking for where to pick this up at. Um, so Abraham called the name of that pl- uh, place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of Yahweh it shall be provided. And look what it says in verse 15. And the angel of Yahweh called to Abraham a second time and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and you have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. I I should back up. Uh, Look at verse 10. Then Abraham, Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of Yahweh called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or anything excuse me, to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So, is Abraham withholding Isaac or not withholding Isaac from an angel who is delivering this message? Or is it saying that Abraham is not withholding his son from me, God himself, is saying this. Yeah, but who does it say is actually speaking to him? The angel of Yahweh. So all of these encounters are encounters with God, and yet what does God tell Moses? None can see me and live. Did Jacob live? Yeah. Did Moses live? Did Gideon live? And there's many other examples of the angel of Yahweh encountering people. So this is a a regular, not regular, I don't mean to make it mundane or clockwork, but I mean, this is not... A singular thing in the Old Testament. This happens repeatedly in the Old Testament. Um, so again, you have encounters between God and people, and they are not destroyed. Um, Numbers twelve eight says that 
God and Moses spoke face to face. That's the way it's described, is face to face. That's echoed again in, um, I lost my place, in Deuteronomy, where it says that they spoke face to face. Was Moses destroyed? No. So it's also interesting there in one of those verses where it says that they spoke like that, that Moses says there will be another prophet like him. And it's coming off the context of that Moses spoke face to face with God. That other prophet that is like Moses is Christ. And Christ, you know, he and the Father are one, but they also, he, they, they communicate, they talk. So Christ is going to do what Moses is doing, but in a greater, in a perfect fashion. But it's looking forward to that. So uh, another example, one of my favorites of of uh, God encountering people and them living is in Joshua chapter 5. And <clears throat> this is after the they've crossed, after Joshua has led the people across Jordan, they've celebrated the Passover, and so now it's time to roll up their sleeves and get to work. And so Joshua goes out to reconnoiter Jericho and see what it's going to look like. And while he's out kind of skulking around the city, he meets a guy with a drawn sword. And Joshua says to him, are you with them or with us? And he says, neither. I'm the commander of Yahweh's armies. And then what does he tell him to do? Take off your, yep, and what does Joshua do? And worships. Will an angel receive worship? No. So this is, this is God. Is it the Father? None can see the Father and live. It's Jesus. It's the pre-incarnate Christ. Spoiler, there's a spoiler alert. <laughs> All of this talk about the angel of Yahweh... All of those encounters with the angel of Yahweh, the angel of Yahweh is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. It's Jesus, but he's God. So Jacob could wrestle with the pre-incarnate Christ and see God face to face and yet not be destroyed. Does that make sense? So here we're starting to see the Trinit like I said, the Trinitarian implications of all of this and, and really the, the Trinity present in the Sinai event is throughout the Old Testament we see people having these encounters with God and not being destroyed. And yet from God's own lips he says, If you see me, you will be destroyed. None can see me and live. So it is through the Trinity that we reconcile these things. And I think it's, 
it makes the Old Testament so much more meaningful and exciting when you when you pull all these things together and you understand that Jesus is is present in all of these things. Like we see him throughout the Old Testament. He's not called Jesus, but we still see the Son of God. And we'll talk about some of what that means here in a, in a little bit. But we see that going on throughout the Old Testament. We see, I mean, it's Christ that Moses is encountering on Sinai. You know, he's it's Christ at the burning bush. You know, it, I think it's amazing. And, and where do we see, you know, like this whole concept of Christ as the commander of Yahweh's armies, where else do we see that at? In Revelation 19, when he's, you know, coming in riding on a white horse and he's got, you know, the armies behind him and he comes in and he is a victorious leader of the armies of God in the final battle. So he really is the commander of Yahweh's armies. So, and when you read Old Testament prophets like Malachi, and things like that. I mean, quite when you did Malachi, what what was the name for God that was most commonly used in that? Yahweh of hosts or you know, Yahweh of armies. Well, that's an oblique reference to Christ because when you see the armies and God being mentioned together, you know Christ is present in that because he is the commander of Yahweh's armies. Okay, so moving on. How do we see, so where do we see all of this encountering between God and people at Sinai? So there's, so we've just, I've mentioned a lot of them, but let's pull them all together. So we, at Sinai, people have, Moses has seen God at the burning bush. Who led the people to Sinai? In what? What? Who led Moses? In what form? The big what? Yeah, the pillar of cloud. That's, that's also recognized as the angel of Yahweh. So and as we'll see we'll, in a little bit, in just a few minutes here, that's, that cloud is present when Moses encounters God face to face. So let's look at that. Uh, if I can remember where it's at. And my brain just went totally blank. It's in Exodus, but I think it's Exodus 30. Um, sorry, give me a minute. Uh, yeah, thir- uh, Exodus 33, uh, starting in 7. Now Moses used to take to the tent and pitch it outside of the camp. So this is the tent of meeting. It's not quite the tabernacle yet, but he's pitching a tent outside of the camp. 
And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. And when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. <coughs> Excuse me. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. And thus Yahweh used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And when Mo- this, is, this is the part I find especially interesting. When Moses turned again in, re- into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. He's actually staying in the tent with God. So Moses is there, or Joshua is there as well. And that brings me to an interesting... Um, I don't know if we really want to talk about that right now. Actually, there's a there's an interesting play here throughout the Old Testament where there is a a lesser and a greater. So there's frequently we see prophets come in pairs, and there is a lesser and a greater. So here we have Moses and Joshua. When we read the stories of Moses and Joshua, who do we consider to be the greater of the two? Moses. And indeed, none, there is not a prophet, there's a, there will not be another prophet like Moses until Christ comes. But at the same time, hermeneutically, uh, when we look at the, the typology, I should say, of the foreshadowing of Christ, Joshua is the greater. Joshua is the one who completes the work that Moses began. When we think of David and Solomon, who is the greater king? He's the man after God's own heart, right? But who completed the work? Solomon. We see it again when you think of Elijah and Elisha. Who's the more famous prophet? Elijah. And yet, Elisha is the one who completes all the work that Elijah began. So you have this interesting play going on in the Old Testament where you have the there's the first and then there's the greater and the first is is often the one that's more common in our minds and that God is using in in mighty ways but it's the one that comes after that finishes the work who finished John the Baptist's work Christ so all of these different relationships are foreshadowing what is to come. I mean, there is a foreshadowing between Moses and Joshua that is compared to the relationship between John and Jesus and David and Solomon. And each of them also, you know, David is still typologically a foreshadowing of Christ, but his son is also completing what he began. So just as Christ will ultimately complete what the greatest prophet, John, began. So it's it's just an interesting dynamic that exists, and I and I think it would should encourage us all to go and read what did Elisha really do? I mean, he did some. He really is very good. And it, 
you're, you're exactly right. He did twice what Elijah did. And yet, who's the more famous prophet? Elijah. You see what I'm saying? So Joshua, anyway, that's a sidetrack. I don't mean to go down too many tangents. Sure. But there's a different dynamic at play there as well. And actually, now that I think about it, I would say that's not. That's a, that is a totally different dynamic now that I think about it. Because <coughs> they, Adam and Jesus were not a pair. I totally agree. I mean, that is totally accurate. But that's why I say it's a, it's a different dynamic than the the lesser, greater relationship that we see, like, you know, the the Moses-Joshua or Elijah-Elisha relationship. You're totally right. I mean, that is correct. I mean, and, and we see that in places where we would hardly ever expect to see it, like in Philippians 2, when it says that, talking about Christ emptying himself, and it says that, he saw equality with God as not something to be grasped. He is, in effect, undoing what Adam did. Because if they ate the fruit, what would they be? The serpent promised them. Like God. So Adam saw equality with God as something to be grasped. And Christ is the opposite. He saw equality with God as not something to be grasped. And so the second Adam will undo the sin of the first Adam. So it's really, it's almost an opposite relationship where, you know, Solomon is completing David's work. Or Joshua is, is leading the people into the land that Moses did not finish. Does that make sense? So, that's a good observation because there is a connection between Adam and Christ. But, it's not one that's really good for Adam. <coughs> Man, I'm sorry, guys. Um, so that brings us back to Sinai, where I was trying to catalog all the different encounters that people have with God. So we have the burning bush. We have the feast itself on Sinai. And there's a lot of things that are going on in that feast. Um, and they're, they're, when they, like, it's like when they're eating their, that feast and God is present, making the covenant with the nation, it's like the heavens are opened up and they can see the throne room of God. It's like a similar kind of vision than, to what we see in Ezekiel and what we see in Revelation. So, and what's, what's, What's the common thread in the description that runs through all of those? Separating the people from God is a sheet of some clear substance. It's described as glass or as crystal or as ice. And in all three of these descriptions of God in his throne room, we, there's this clear barrier that exists between God and, and the people. Just an interesting thing to note. I mean, personally, I'm not going to argue this theologically because it doesn't specifically say, but I think it was something protective that allowed people to observe God and not be destroyed. So, anyway, that's going again off, off track. 
Um, and then you have Moses up on the mountain encountering God. And then in the tent, when he comes off of Sinai, he's encountering God again. He's speaking to him face to face. And not just Moses, but Joshua as well. So you have all these encounters going on at Sinai. And so why that raises then the question, how can Moses and Joshua and the elders encounter God and not be destroyed when it's at Sinai from God's own lips that if you see me, none can see me and live. So we have multiple encounters with God and they're all living. So what is going on? Exactly. It's when we see God when people in the Old Testament are seeing God, they are seeing Jesus Christ, the pre-incarnate Christ. Yes. <clears throat> I have no idea. I don't know the answer to that. So, um, But where can we go to find some good answers to reconcile that? Yes. Where in the Bible? What's a good book to, to start in? John. John is the go-to place. There, It is, you know, as Papias said, it's the spiritual gospel. So he, you know, Papias was an early church writer, and he said after... The other Gospels had been written. John set out to write a spiritual Gospel. And John is totally different from all the other Gospels. Does anyone know what percentage of the Gospel of John only appears in the Gospel of John and is not present in any of the other Gospel accounts? What? A lot. Well, so the Gospels all record... They record a lot of the same events, right? So, a lot of the things that happen in Mark and Luke happen in, I mean, a lot of the same things are accounted, recounted in Matthew, in Luke, and in Mark. So, most of Mark is, most of the things that happen in Mark are also in either Matthew or Luke or both. A lot of the things are shared between Mark and Luke, and a lot of things are shared between Mark and Matthew. But how much of John is shared with the other Gospels, the events in John? 90% of the book of John is only in the book of John. So it has almost nothing else in common with the other Gospels. So, the you know, the, 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 the crucifixion, the baptism of Christ, I mean, that's almost... There's a couple other things, but that's almost all there is, event-wise, that happens in John. That also happens in the three other Gospels. So John is just operating. He has a totally different agenda when he's writing. And it's an agenda that is in, intended to glorify Christ. It's what we call a high Christology. He is, he's, not, he's writing about the earthly life of Christ, but he's using it to reveal the glorious nature of the Son of God, not necessarily to recount the human life of Christ. Even though Matthew and Luke are talking about God, Christ as God too, 
not in the same way that John is. So how do we see that? Well, there's the first chapter of John. I want to come back to that, though. But that's worth just noting. John, in, in John 14, 8 through 10, and let me just turn there. I mean, we can just turn to John and stay there for a while. So John 14, starting in verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. (coughs) The Father and I are one. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So think about that statement by Christ in the context of Sinai. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So when Moses saw the burning bush, Christ could say to him, or the angel of Yahweh could say to him, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And this is a consistent theme throughout the book of John. So in John chapter 10, starting in verse 30, Christ says, I and the Father are one. And the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Why would they want to stone him for saying that? Yeah, he just committed blasphemy. He said he is God. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? Uh, I lost my place. I'm sorry. Um, Yeah, Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that you are going to that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you are a man. Make yourself God. And Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word God word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming, because I said I am the Son of God? I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe in me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe in me, believe the works, that you may know and understand the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. So again, Christ is connecting himself with the Father. They're not just, they know each other, One is in the other. 
But when you see the one, because the one is in the other, you see the other. So just as Gideon saw the angel of Yahweh and despaired because he saw God, and yet he was not destroyed, he was seeing the pre-incarnated Jesus Christ. When Moses was talking to God face to face, who was he talking to? The Father and I are one. And we see this in the, sev- in the seven famous I am statements that Christ makes in the, in, in the Gospel of John. I am the true vine. I am the shepherd. I am the bread of life. And so forth. When he says, I am, what is he saying? Yeah, Yahweh. That's what Yahweh means. It means I am. What's the... What, what is that communicating? Does anyone remember the word from our Sunday school class? What? It is that, but there's a, a technical theological word for it. No? It, it's related. The word is aseity. It means self-sufficiency. So God needs nothing for existence. He is the self-existent one. When he says, I am that I am, he is claiming that he is, that he has a saity. Nothing else has that. Nothing else is dependent on nothing else for existence. God is because he is. So his very name is proclaiming his self, it's not even self-sufficiency, his self-existence. So when Christ keeps saying, I am the bread of life. I am the true vine. The Jews are hearing that. I am, I am, I am, I am. And what is the thing that they do not say? What? Well, they don't say the name of God. They don't even write it. That's why in your Bibles, it's tradition to have Yahweh indicated by Lord with all capital letters. That goes back to the Hebrew tradition of not even (coughs) uttering or writing the name of God. When they would get to Yahweh in the scriptures, they would go dash, 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 dash. And that was, when you read that, implied that that says Yahweh. Yeah. Absolutely. There's there's other I am statements throughout John. So he is, Christ is explicitly connecting himself to the Father, to God. So then let's take that back to chapter 1. And how is Christ described as, or how, what is the word that is used to describe Christ in chapter 1? Word. So, in, in the, that word in Greek is logos. And that is a word that is loaded with philosophical and theological meaning. So, 
it doesn't just mean a word. Like I said, jump. There's a word. Or I said, huskau. You know, there's a word. In Greek, you would call that a rhema, which is just an, a, a word, a statement, an utterance. But a logos is something different. A logos is the expression of an idea. And the idea has, and this is where it's going to get a little arcane here, but the idea has a greater reality behind it. So when I say justice, there's a big concept behind that word, is there not? Or if I say horse, there is a larger concept of hoarseness behind that word. And I'm, in, in speaking that word, I am projecting that large concept into the world. Does that make sense? I don't know if it does. But that's what the logos is. It's the projection of a greater meaning into the world. It is the point of contact between the world and this big idea of free. So when John is using the word logos, word, to talk about God, he is using an idea about here is the ultimate reality of God and the word is the projection of that reality into the world is that that does make sense that is why it is here and only here with the exception of first John and Revelation also authored by John that you have this term being used. When we talk about the Word of God, is Christ is the, the Word. This is what it's talking about. And so, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Separate, yet one. So what's significant about this? Can people perceive the Father? No, they will be what? Be destroyed. And yet it's through the projection of the Word into the world that people can encounter Christ, or encounter God. And Christ is that Word. He is the the projection of that ultimate reality of the Father into the world. I mean, he's more than that. He is with the Father. But when the Father, when God wants to be present in the world, it is through the Son, through the Logos, that people can encounter him. So it's really better to say that none can see the Father and live. And yet people can encounter God through his son. Which is one of the reasons why he's called Emmanuel. Which means what? God with us. <coughs> and there in first in John in verse eighteen, 
says, no one has seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So no one has seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. So we've gone from the Word, which is the projection of the Father, the ultimate reality of the Father, into the world. The, the prologue then closes with the statement that no one has seen God, but the only God, the Logos, who is at the Father's side, he is with God, as it says back at the beginning, has made him known. So when you think of Sinai, then you think of all these encounters that people are having with God, it's the Logos. It's Jesus. So it's the Logos that Moses sees in the burning bush. And it's, I think it's not by accident that you know, we have an idea of the Word. What does it say there in, in 18? It says, He has what? Made Him known. So a word is projecting that reality. We know things through words. There's a, when you talk about word, just the idea of a word, what's fundamental to that? What is the fundamental thing that's going on there? No. Communication. He has made him known. What does an angelos, a messenger, do? They're not running around building something or fighting. They are the what? The messenger. They're making something known. So the angel of Yahweh is the messenger of Yahweh. He is the one making Yahweh known. See how it all fits together? It's actually pretty amazing when you really start to pull it all together. But when we when we look at Sinai, you know, we we really should see this as an encounter between God, I mean between the people and Christ. The Father's there, but he's projected down into this meeting with the people through the Son of God. And that's not how we think of Sinai. But it that's what it is. So let's end, just to tie this all up in a, in a little bit of a bow, let's go to Hebrews, first chapter of Hebrews. <coughs> I'm really sorry. So Hebrews 1 through 3. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke, which is what? Communication. To our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. 
He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. I'll just stop there. Do you see how that dovetails very nicely with the prologue in John? So you have, you know, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then what, hap- what does the word do next? He creates. All things were made through him. And here you see that again. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. But I love that description. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He's the radiance of the glory. And so he is the light that is being shined out by the glory of God. But in that shining, he is the exact imprint of his nature. So when you see me, you have seen the Father. He is the radiance of the glory of God. And you can take that back to Colossians 1.15 or just that whole first section in Colossians. So you get this from John. You're getting it from the author of Hebrews. And you're getting it from Paul. All three of these things fit together very, very, very tightly. So it's almost like there was somebody responsible for all of this fitting together. So look at uh, Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. In him all things hold together. Look at back at Hebrews 1.3. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. I think it's pretty amazing. He's the image of the invisible God. He is the radiance of the glory. When no one has known the Father, but when they know Christ, they know the Father. So this was kind of just a long and roundabout way of looking at these encounters that people are having at Sinai, of which there are many encounters between God and people at Sinai. And elsewhere in the Old Testament, and recognizing that it's really it's Jesus Christ, pre-incarnation, before He empties Himself and takes on flesh, the eternally existent Son of God, who was there in the beginning, is active throughout the Old Testament, and He's doing a whole bunch of stuff at Sinai. And when you read Exodus, you should just recognize that that is your Savior, Jesus Christ, making this covenant with. All in there. Any questions? I did everything perfectly. Okay. Then let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for sustaining the universe. For holding it up and withholding your righteous anger from it. 
Thank you for your son who has made you known. Thank you for letting us know him. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks, everybody.